What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, This is episode 118, 119, 120, something like that of the podcast. I never remember the the episode numbers. Sorry about that, guys. But but yeah, so we're not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you just tuning, tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here on the podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published and uh, you know have a discussion about that and hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read so if you like this podcast please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this and my guest today is Dr. William Doyle, and Dr. Doyle is Professor Emeritus of History and a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Bristol, and is also a Fellow of the British Academy. His books include The Old European Order, 1660 to 1800, The Oxford History of the French Revolution, Venality, the Sale of Offices in 18th Century France, Jansenism, Catholic Resistance to Authority from the Reformation to the French Revolution, and Aristocracy and its Enemies in the Age of Revolution. And lastly, he's the author of Napoleon, a Peace, How to End a Revolution, which was originally published last October by Reaction Books, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Doyle, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So, uh, intro question that, you know, I ask everybody, you know, what, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was, what was the genesis of it? Well, for years and years, I avoided Napoleon because uh, like most historians <laughs> who focus on the revolution, you tend to think that uh, Napoleon is something which is hostile to the whole thing and and uh, and, and, and uh, you can cut off at 1799 and, and, and that's a different world and so on. Mm-hmm. But over the years, I got more and more drawn into it. I mean, one of my early books was called Origins of the French Revolution. And now I've been writing about the ending of the French Revolution by Napoleon. And uh, um, it, it seemed a, a, a something worth exploring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially Napoleon, well, he ends the revolution, but he sort of synthesizes it with monarchy. Oh, yes. Himself. I mean, Napoleon, Napoleon always takes the line, I am a son of the revolution. He knew that the, he could not have done what he'd done without the revolution because... Uh, it, under the old regime, okay, he would he would have been an officer, but he would never have risen above the middle ranks of the army and never had the opportunities which the revolution gave him. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. But uh, uh, he said later on, you know, when I actually took power in 1799, um, the revolution was not over. Um, it hadn't none of the problems that it had thrown up had been resolved and. Uh, uh, what I tried to do uh, is is resolve them, and 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 the the book is about the ways in which Napoleon confronts the problems bequeathed by the revolution, and solves them, uh, or most of them anyway, uh, f- for a time. Some mm-hmm. of them go on, but nevertheless, you know, uh, he he's able to put the revolution more or less behind him, um, and behind France, and move on to. Uh, 
Napoleonic things. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that when he is in uh, the very end of the 18th century, when he's um, maneuvering himself into power, that the revolution is um, failing in a lot of ways, and he recognizes that, and uh, that's another, I mean, obviously for his own personal vanity and ambition, which, you know, sort of knows no bounds, but um, but he sort of recognizes that too and, and thinks that the uh, really the only way to save the revolution at this point is for him to take control of France? Well, he says, when he, he writes a letter to Talleyrand, I think in 1797, and he said, look, the revolution has destroyed uh, an enormous amount of things, but it's not built anything solid in the place. And, and it won't do until the problems which it has created uh, are solved. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, those problems, there are three great problems, I think, uh, that the revolution actually creates. Um, the, the first one is religion, undoubtedly. It's fundamental. It, it tears the country apart. The, uh, the attempt to nationalize religion from 1790 onwards. Um, the, the, the second one is the question of monarchy. Do you, uh, how, the, the executive of the country, how, what's, what sort of executive are you going to have? Can you have a country without a single executive? Um, a, a king, uh, in, in effect. And the third one is the fact that the country's been at war since 1792 and, uh, and it's unresolved. Now, those three problems have not been solved over the 10 years or so of the revolution. They're still there. The whole question of uh, when Napoleon comes to power, the Pope uh, has just died. Uh, in French captivity, and it's not sure there's ever going to be another pope. That, that's, that's the extent of the quarrel between the revolution and religion. The war is still going on, and it's not going particularly well um, in 1799. Uh, part of it is actually the result of Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, but that's a, a, a side <laughs> issue there. And then the whole question is, you know, who is, who is qualified to give orders and actually run the state? Those three questions are not resolved in 1799, and it takes Napoleon a few years to actually resolve them. Mm -hmm. You start the uh, book off uh, in the introduction, or maybe it's the preface, I can't remember. I think it's the introduction, uh, with a quote uh, from Sir Matthew Millay. Uh, basically, so long as Napoleon was not making war, his prodigious yeah. activity was entirely directed within it was yeah. peace that he shone with the purest brightness and through and through his rarest qualities. Yes, I mean this this is a period when you think of it. Napoleon has not only fought one battle between 1799 and 1805, uh, so this is a period when he is actually at peace, and he nearly lost that battle too, the Battle of Marengo. So you know this is a period when he is concentrating above all on internal matters on 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 and on, on, on pulling the state together as it were and uh, I've never actually been much interested in Napoleon as a soldier although most people are what what interests me when you when you look at Napoleon is the sheer ability of the man the sheer ability to concentrate his mind on mm -hmm. dealing with dealing with any sort of problem that comes up and uh, and, and this is what he's doing in that period of, of, of relative peace between between 1799 and, uh, and 1803. Yeah, it's interesting how many of his contemporaries uh, remark on his on his stamina, uh, not so yeah. much his, his physical stamina, but his but his mental stamina. 
uh, the, the amount of uh, just prodigious energy he uh, brought forth to uh, really any undertaking he was, you know, yeah. left for, for undertaking, you know. No, that's absolutely right. I yeah. mean, uh, his, his ability to keep different balls in the air all the time is really very impressive. And, and uh, whatever he focuses on for the moment, it's laser-like, and then he can switch the laser and deal with something else at the same time. It's, it's, uh, he is an extraordinarily able man. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, I should, uh, I've already remarked to Dr. Doyle about this, but for those of you listening out there, just a full uh, brief uh, segue here. Uh, my neighbor across the street is <laughs> decided to uh, start roofing or re-roofing I his really house. I really can't hear anything. <laughs> can't hear anything? All right, well, just nope. in case. So nope. if you guys hear any nail guns or hammers or anything like that, yeah, uh, sure. So that's in the background. So, uh, like I said, okay. I'll, I'll try to keep it quiet. But anyway, um, all right. So it all starts off. Really, we kind of have Admiral Sir Sidney Smith to uh, right. thank <laughs> uh, for yes. for all of this going forward. So uh, how how did uh, Admiral Smith allow allow Napoleon to seize his destiny? Well, the whole the whole conduct of, of Sidney Smith is very interesting. I mean, Sidney Smith is, is 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 a Francophile. He likes France. He speaks absolutely perfect French. Um, and in fact, he spent the last years of his life. He's actually buried in Paris. Uh, so you know, he, he feels that uh, uh, whatever happens, um, France is going to benefit because first of all, you know, if if Napoleon escapes from Egypt, well. Uh, the British fleet might well catch him, and they were unlucky not to do so at that particular time. But if he gets to France, Smith calculates, well, maybe, you know, that will result in civil war. Um, and uh, the the Bourbons, whom, whom he, he really uh, supports, uh, will then benefit from that. So in, in some ways, you know, it's, it's not that uh, Sidney Smith inadvertently allows Napoleon to escape by sending him uh, newspaper reports of French defeats. Uh, he actually thinks it might be a very good thing if Napoleon uh, escapes from Egypt because uh, he doesn't think it's going to work out well. And that's a, a huge miscalculation, obviously, on, on Smith's part. Uh, do, you th is, do you think that's one of history's biggest miscalculations, like with the... Uh... With the Germans sending Lenin back, back to well, yes, uh, St. Yes, Petersburg. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a good yeah, that's a good parallel, I think, actually. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, okay. So, well, for him, for Napoleon to be at peace, he obviously has to make peace. So, how does he, how does Napoleon uh, seize power, and how do we get to the to the Peace of Amiens, which will uh, end uh, the basically the Revolutionary War period, the French Revolutionary War period, after uh, essentially 10 years of uh, a decade of fighting. Yes, well, he realized the first priority is actually to make peace, to bring peace about, to mm -hmm. end the war. Um, and uh, he does that by um, defeating the Austrians. Um, he defeats the Marengo, where, uh, as I say, he was extremely lucky uh, he wasn't defeated there and extremely lucky that the Austrians decided that they had been defeated when their army was still intact and, and rather larger than his. So there's a bit of luck involved there, although the real winner of that war is Morrow, in fact, uh, in, in, in the Battle of Hohenlinden um, uh, six months later. Uh, when the Austrians realize they are actually beaten. So that's the Austrians dealt with, partly by Napoleon, more by Moro 
in fact. And then there's this, it, it, uh, really, it's a coincidence because although the British are still in the field there, very much so, um, they're war-weary um, and there's a crisis in the British government. The, the British uh, First Minister, Pitt, has made a promise to the uh, Irish that he will um, support Catholic emancipation uh, as, a, as, a, as a quid pro quo for uniting the two kingdoms under, in, under, under one parliament. But the king won't do it. He says it's against his oath. Um, and uh, Pitt therefore feels obliged to resign. And it's the, it's the resignation of Pitt which opens the way for making peace with Great Britain as, as, as well as uh, peace with Austria. So there's, there's a huge element of coincidence and luck there in, in, the, in the way uh, the British make peace. But anyway, they do. And, and so that Napoleon is able um, in the spring of, of, of 1802 to celebrate uh, pacifying the whole of Europe and, and France being at peace with, uh, with all its former enemies. Yeah. And what does peace mean, uh, not just for, for Napoleon, but, uh, but for France itself? You know, for France that had, like I said, well, again, had been, a, it, been it, a war it, for a decade. Yeah, it, it means it, it, you you can, to some extent, dismantle the war economy, dismantle the, the, the machinery of conscription, particularly, you know, you can cut down the size of the armies and... and uh, and uh, you, you can they hopefully cut down the, the the burden of taxation, which is mm -hmm. which has been imposed by the war. Uh, there's a great huge war weariness, and there was a, a lot of celebration when the, uh, peace had come, especially when it's peace with victory. Right. Uh, that's the thing. You know, not only are we at peace, we've won. Right. And and, and certainly uh, the French had won at that particular moment. Yeah. Did he? Did did Bonaparte? Did he consider? Uh, the Amiens peace to be a short-term expedient, or did he did he expect a long-term peace? What uh, do we know? Yeah, that, have, have any idea what uh, what he was thinking? That's the difficult thing. In some ways, it's a breather, mm -hmm. um, and he actually says at one point to one of his uh, confidants, you know, um, sooner or later we'll uh, war will break out again. Um, and um, I won't get blamed for it, but uh, uh, nevertheless, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. And in, of course, he loved fighting. I mean, this is the thing about Napoleon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he really loved uh, uh, war. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, pretty good at it, you know. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> anyway, okay, so uh, moving on um, to the dealing with the church, the Catholic church. And yes, if you could yes. talk a, a bit about the deterioration of the revolution's relationship with, with the church and with Christianity yeah. as a whole, this is, um, you write that it's essentially the oldest and deepest wound inflicted on France by the revolution. Yeah. And by the end of the century, Napoleon uh, sort of recognizes that the religious system uh, situation uh, is probably the most pressing domestic problem facing the revolution. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly it is. I mean, it, it starts off by the attempt by the revolutionaries to, as it were, nationalize the church by cutting out papal power. Uh, the, the, the Pope in many, the Pope is a foreign prince. I mean, he's, he's, he's not just uh, um, the, the high priest of the Catholic church. I mean, he, he's a, he's a secular ruler of much of Italy. Um, 
in the 18th century and uh, it, it's felt that uh, he is a foreign prince and he should have no jurisdiction inside France um, and uh, the civil constitution of the clergy which is uh, passed in, in, in 1790 uh, cuts out the Pope. The problem is the Pope uh, refuses to recognize what's been done um, and this faces all Catholics with a problem basically uh, because the, the the Pope says any priest, um, any person in holy orders who um, accepts the civil constitution of the clergy is deprived of their priestly powers. Now, the problem in that case is uh, how on earth do faithful Catholics get the sacraments? Because only a priest can 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 confer the sacraments. Only a priest can marry. Only a priest can hear confession. Only a priest can legitimately uh, give extreme unction and so on. So you, you, it, it polarizes the whole of France. If you do, if you if you recognize the the civil constitution of the clergy, you, you are rejecting the authority of the Pope and you're rejecting the authority by which he deprives uh, 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 priests accepting the civil constitution of, um, of their priestly powers. Now, this and, and, and the, the revolutionaries take the line, you know, that this is a, this is a matter of obedience to the law of the nation. Uh, the uh, civil constitution has passed. It's, it's a law. Um, and those who reject it are not just uh, doing this on grounds of conscience, they are flouting the law. And, and, and so the, the, the country is completely polarized and, and more and more uh, what happened. And, 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 well, before that, I mean, the, the person who, who is uh, uh, immediately uh, confronted with the, the most serious of these problems is the very devout king. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's the religious question which finally impels the king to try and leave Paris in the flight to Varennes in 1791. This opens up the whole question of royalty, the whole question of monarchy, the whole question of, of, of whether or not France should move towards being a republic. And the, and the church and the religion are all bound up in that. Mm -hmm. And through much of the 90s, the Catholic Church is the sort of centre of counter-revolution, centre of royalism, even after the king is executed. The king becomes a, a religious martyr, in effect. Um, and, and the country continues polarised in that way right down to 1799. And as I say, the ultimate thing comes when, in, in, in at the end of the 1790s, uh, the Pope himself is captured taken back to France, mm -hmm. dies on French territory, and when Napoleon comes to power, there is no Pope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Pius VI for those yeah, that's right. keeping score at home. Yeah. Um, so he finally gets uh, a concordat with the church in July of 1801. Yes. What, uh, what, does the, what does the concordat say? Uh, and um, Well, in, in, in many ways, it, it gets the church, it gets the new Pope Who's elected in the spring of of, of seventeen uh, uh, the, the the spring of eighteen hundred? Uh, uh, gets the new pope more or less agrees to nearly everything that the civil constitution of the clergy had tried to impose way back in seventeen ninety. Uh, the only thing he doesn't agree to, and, and Napoleon doesn't agree to it either, is is the element of election which had been there in the civil constitution of the clergy um, under the concordat. The French government. Uh, actually decides who the clergy are going to be, either by appointing the bishops or by th through bishops they've appointed uh, uh, 
verifying the powers of, of a lower clergy uh, as well. So it's in many ways, it's a surrender by the um, mm-hmm. by the Catholic Church. I mean, the, the most important thing that they brought up when the negotiations is the fact that the lands of the church had been nationalized and, and, and confiscated by the state at the beginning of the 1790s. And the Pope says, all right, well, let's negotiate, but let's, uh, what about these lands? Should the lands of the church, can we have our lands back? And um, Napoleon says, no, if you if you want to raise that one, the deal's off. You know, you have got to accept the loss of those lands, many of which have been sold off, redistributed, everything else like that. Does, you can't undo that settlement. Does he does uh, does he not give the uh, the unsold lands, so the lands that have been seized but not yet sold? Does doesn't he give those back to the church? Some of those, some yeah, of, yeah, some of those go, go back certainly, but but uh, generally speaking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, those who have bought church lands, the confiscated church lands, have invested in the work of the sure. revolution. You can't undo that. Right. So, um, so what effect? Uh, the broader question: What effect did the revolution, uh, the French Revolution, have on the church? Not just, not just in France, but uh, throughout Europe and well, well, globally. Well, it's interesting because <laughs> the problem Napoleon faces domestically is that most of the people who are quite happy to see him in power and want him in power. Uh, are very hostile to the church. They say, look, the church has been at the heart of counter-revolution for a decade or so. Uh, it's it's a, a deep enemy of everything that we've done in this country during this time. And, and at the heart of that lies the, the, the power of the papacy and so on. Mm. Napoleon says to them, look, we cannot do any sort of deal about the church without doing a deal with the Pope. We've got to work with the Pope. And there again, that's Napoleon's steely realism about what needs to be done. And mm. he has to force it through. And he says it's the most difficult thing he ever did, in fact, to try and force that con- concordat through and, and, and get uh, the French elites to uh, accept it. But what it does, paradoxically, uh, because he um, does this deal, it says it can only be done with the Pope, it actually increases the authority of the Pope right. over the Catholic Church. And that's something... Uh, the whole of the Catholic Church, not just in France, you know, it acknowledges the power of the Pope to depose bishops and things like that, which had never been acknowledged before. Um, so actually, the, the sort of um, uh, militant Catholicism of early 19th century um, uh, finds its roots in many ways in the way Napoleon decides to uh, negotiate the restoration of the altars directly with the Pope. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon's not a believer by any stretch of the imagination he's uh, no no yeah. i mean he, he says he said oh well as a god i'm sure there is but uh, uh he's he's not uh he's not a believer in that sense but he, right. he you know he goes through the through the the ritual the motions yeah that's yeah, right yeah. What, of what's expected of him right 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 yeah okay um so moving on uh, if we could talk a little bit about the the social divisions that were established uh by the revolution, by the overthrow of the monarchy, and then by the execution of Louis the Sixteenth, which a lot of people, many people in France, many revolutionaries even, still had a uh, uh, positive opinion of. Yeah, and this is this is the real problem. People cannot really see how um, the, a country the size of France. 
uh, can be ruled except by some sort of monarchy, some sort of powerful central executive. Uh, everyone feels that's necessary. Uh, uh, and and um, all the thinkers of the 18th century said you can have republics, but they've got, they can only be small. Mm -hmm. You can't have a large republic. So there's that to start with. Secondly, uh, the fact that the, the actual French Republic that comes into being after the overthrow of the monarchy is born in a time of bloodshed. Yes. It's born uh, within weeks of the September massacres of, of 1792. And then the Republic only survives uh, really the first challenge to its existence uh, with the terror in um, in, in 1793 to four. So republicanism is associated fundamentally with terror. Um, and Napoleon says, looking back, one of the many things he says when he's on Centralina, looking back on his life, he says, you know, it was terror that destroyed the republic mm. uh, because of the way it, the republic was born in terror. And people said, can you have a republic without terror? Uh, the only the only uh, example you see of it is is what's happened in France. And there you you certainly had a, a republic born in terror. Sure. Yeah, what does he say? Something uh, the uh, blood uh, victims' blood uh, has no roots or uh, yes, something right. along that's, that right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the citizens. Uh, so eventually, you know, getting further down the line, there's going to be uh, <laughs> a vote. I mean, it's you know maybe I don't know if rigged is the right word, but it, but it's uh, pretty much in the bag from the beginning. But uh, uh, most so there's going to be a vote. The vote Napoleon consul for life, so essentially yes. king. Yes. Uh, so most of the citizens who vote for him for consul for life, uh, really they believe that um, through Napoleon that they're gonna they're bringing back the, the monarchical system, but really, yeah. but really they're bringing back uh, stability and and uh, rest and an end to. No, absolutely yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, yes. So, the, the, they, that's that's what they're voting for. They're the, voting for stability and order. Yeah. and an end to the disorder of 10 years of revolution. Yeah, and Napoleon himself uh, hated disorder, and he was extremely right. extremely fearful of popular uprisings, and partially that's due to you know, what he had witnessed uh, with his own eyes during the revolution. Um, talk a little bit about the, the lawlessness of the revolutionary period and how, and how Napoleon returned order and stability to France. Yeah, the really the real problem is when the when the the old regime is destroyed, the old regime system of policing is also destroyed. Uh, you don't have any real um, uh, organization of policing or justice, and 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 when uh, um, attempts are made to institute these things, they're very half-hearted, very very difficult to to put in place. Um, and uh, you can't even, uh, the early stages anyway, use uh, the armed forces to do that because the armed forces, first of all, in the early years are not reliable at all. And then they are involved in uh, on the frontiers uh, defending the, the young republic. So what you don't have is any clear system of authority and policing throughout much of the, the decade. Um, and uh, that leads to huge amounts of, of lawlessness. And, and some of that lawlessness uh, uh, takes the form, 
really of counter-revolution in, in in effect uh, that it's a very blurred frontier between between uh, uh, sheer criminality and and, and counter-revolution um and uh, uh, the, the the problem confronting napoleon is, is is how to restore that sort of order should we um i know it's called the french revolution but uh, how much of uh should we consider it uh, uh a civil war by in any sense i mean um I, know, uh, I mean i know like say the american revolution um obviously mm -hmm. uh you know it's us against the british but there's a lot there's uh especially in the southern states there's a lot of uh you know american on american uh yes. battles and that yes. sort of thing a lot of violence a lot of reprisals and yeah. Uh, yeah. that sort of thing how much uh how much should we think of the french revolution as um as some sort of civil war oh yes you must you must it it, it absolutely is and and i mean the terror um is is actually the mopping up of a civil war most of mm. it most of the victims of the terror um are out in the provinces and they've been involved in what's called the federalist revolt of 1793 um and uh, most of those victims are people who are being who have been on the wrong side yeah. have been defeated and 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 terror is the is the uh, uh, the instrument by which they're punished yeah. So yeah, the, the the country is polarized by civil war. There's absolutely no doubt for for most of that decade. And uh, well, one of Napoleon's key aims is actually to try and reconcile, to 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 bring the opposed sides together so far as he can by saying, look, you know, um, uh, all I ask of you is you don't need to give up your principles in some ways, but as long as you back me, um, then that's fine, and 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 I will back you. Mm -hmm. So how much credit should we give Napoleon during this period for, uh, I mean, you know, outside of what he's going to do uh, the rest of his career as as consul and, and emperor? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But how much uh, credit should we give him for um, for returning fr to France some sort of uh, normalcy and uh, sort of dissipating all the uh, the tensions of, of the revolution? Absolutely. I mean, so he says at one point, you know, um, all the battles that I've won will be forgotten. This is this is this is a bit extra, extreme for him to say that all the battles that I've won will be forgotten because I lost Waterloo. But the thing I'll always be remembered for is my code of law, mm. uh, and he puts this emphasis on the law all the time. I restored, you know, legality. I restored. Um, uh, reliable systems of uh, legal systems and and so on, um, and he says that's that will be my greatest memory. And in many ways, it's it's one of his uh, most enduring legacies. When you look at the influence of the of, of the civil code on on the law codes of of, of many European countries and areas, uh, right to this day. Mm -hmm. And he uh, he literally remade the map of Europe. Yes. Oh, time. yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Are you? Uh, it, it's. <laughs> uh, I know you're not a Napoleon biographer, um, but uh, are you? There seems to be the Napoleon biographer guys. They tend to either fall into the God Napoleon is terrible camp, 
or yeah. like uh, or like Andrew Roberts who's like, eh, you know, Napoleon wasn't, you know, that bad and, you know, a lot of positives. And, you know, I know Churchill, I think, had a, a bust of either a bust or a painting of Napoleon yeah. uh, in his yeah. office at, at number 10. Uh, so uh, overall, <laughs> uh, how, what should, how should we how should we feel about uh, about Napoleon? <laughs> well, I mean, say he has enduring legacies. There's no mm-hmm. doubt in, in in all sorts of ways in which the French state is organised, in which the uh, uh, the map of Europe is uh, is uh, uh, configured uh, as well, uh, undoubtedly. And uh, uh, the whole of the 19th century looks back to Napoleon and says either, you know, God, that was great, or never again. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, you know, uh, he he haunts the whole of the 19th century, really, and uh, un- until the First World War, yeah. in many ways, I think. Yeah, there's something... For a despot, uh, maybe he's not a despot, but, I mean, <laughs> there's some sort of charm <laughs> to Napoleon... In a way, I don't, you know, there's, oh, yeah. uh, he's, uh, um, probably the reason, I mean, not beyond his, his world historical importance in which he's probably one of the five or 10 most important human beings, maybe to, to astride the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, there's something to his personality, uh, that makes him, uh, eminently, uh, readable, <laughs> You know what I mean? Yes, like, yeah. So oh, I yeah. think I think that's part of the reason why there's just so many books about Napoleon. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he, he was a very, very crisp at expressing himself. I remember, mm-hmm. most of the documents we've got about Napoleon were dictated. Yeah. He didn't write them. He just he, he just uh, said to his um, secretaries, write. And he would walk up and down and dictate, you know, this lucid, clear prose, which is uh, an enormous advantage to uh, anyone's historical reputation if they express themselves clearly and uh, succinctly and convincingly as well. And he also personally, it's perfectly clear, he could really turn on the charm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, lots of people said so. Um, uh, he would smile at people and said, what a wonderful smile he had, everyone said. Um but he could just turn it off again because he was so much in control of himself all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, one more thing. What was uh, what was international opinion uh, at the time? What was what was the international opinion like at the time Napoleon accomplished inside France? What were people saying about uh, you know that period, uh, the turn of the century, you know, uh, the Peace of Amiens, and then um, basically restoring order and ending the oh. revolution and all that. What what what, oh, well, what were what was the opinion of him like at the time? Oh, people said, you know, how marvelous. We, uh, uh, peace has been restored to Europe, and it's been restored by uh, a person of absolutely superior uh, talents and, and so on. And uh, uh, <clears throat> everyone welcomed the return of peace. I think that's that, that's absolutely true. Um, but the worry was, you know, how long will it last? Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh, and uh, um, is that more Napoleon's fault? Uh, or is there uh, – who's really to blame there for, for breaking a very short-lived uh, peace? Well, it's very controversial as to whether the uh, the British or, or, or the French actually uh, – 
broke the Peace of Amiens. Now, technically speaking, I think it's the British who break it because they they uh, they refuse to evacuate Malta, um, which has been a, a problem even when they, the the peace peace was being negotiated because they fear that uh, Napoleon will want to take Malta and then renew his uh, uh, advances on Egypt and so on. And they mm-hmm. they also see uh, the various advances in in, in French influence in, in Switzerland and in the Low Countries and so on as evidence that Napoleon is not satisfied. And it is true that he's never satisfied with any deal he does. Right. You know, whenever whenever Napoleon makes a deal, um, people may regard that as final, but he regards it as, as a, <laughs> the next uh, negotiating ploy right. in various right. ways. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how throughout history, how many... Uh, little tiny pieces of of territory are the pretext for, for oh yeah for oh, yeah. massive wars you know so uh, so anyway technically uh, it's the brits uh who, who break the the the, the deal uh, but in fact you know these advances these attempts to uh to uh, uh increase french power in as i say in italy and, and, and in switzerland and in the low countries the french are not to uh, observing the spirit of that piece any more than the British are as well. So it's it's only a, a technicality. You can you can you can see um, over the spring of uh, of of, uh, of 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 eighteen o three that Napoleon is getting more and more annoyed and uh, because the Brits won't do what he wants. Yeah, perfidious Albion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Perfect. Yeah. yeah, a well-earned reputation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, end question again. Something I normally uh, ask everybody that comes on here uh, before we go is, um, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or or what's the what's the one thing you'd want them, uh, a reader, to take away from having read it? Seeing beyond the general. I think seeing beyond the uh, the uh, uh, <laughs> one of the most successful generals in history, seeing beyond the military side of it. That's why it's called Napoleon at peace. It's meant to sort of emphasize uh, how much more there is to do about Napoleon. Um, the, the thing we haven't talked about, though, the thing is, oh, it should be sure. mentioned, is the great failure, uh, which I use as an epilogue of the book, the failure to... Uh, to subdue the the Black Rebellion in 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 Saint Domingue. Oh sure, we can talk about that. For... Yeah, and, and it, it, it is it, it's Napoleon's first great failure, in fact, um, and uh, he he reverses the revolutionary um, uh, abolition of slavery. Um, he feels that military force will be enough to actually subdue. Um, Saint-Domingue and, and bring it back to the sort of the slave-based prosperity which it had had before 1789. Uh, but it just didn't work at all. You know, uh, massive force which he which he assembled uh, just uh, dribbled away and was wasted by black rebellion, by his disease and so on. And um, the United States owes a lot to that. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. The Louisiana Territory. <laughs> because yeah. uh, once it's clear that uh, Saint-Domingue is not going to be subjected, then it's not much use to Napoleon to have uh, a nearby source of support uh, in, in Louisiana. And, and it, it's, it's, once it's clear that the, the attempt to subdue the island has, 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 uh, has, has failed, he's then very happy to, to close with Jefferson and, mm. uh, 
in South Louisiana. Yeah, there's actually, I was literally uh, just reading another book. Um, uh, it's on the uh, sort of the administration of the Jefferson and Madison and, and James Monroe. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, there's a point, and they're, they're talking about that, the, the, the purchase negotiations, and they yes. have the deal. And Monroe, James Monroe, who will be the fifth president of the United States, is uh, uh, one of the people in France of working on the yes. deal. And <laughs> and he's getting word that well, Napoleon makes the deal, and then so he uh, you know sends word off to Jefferson, and then a little bit later he's hearing all these rumors that you know or uh, Talleyrand comes to him and says uh, you know um, he he might want to call the deal off, <laughs> blah blah blah. And uh, so he, Napoleon's having second thoughts about, you know, giving up all this land. And basically Monroe has to write Jefferson and be like, hey, you have to get this uh, passed, this treaty uh, passed yeah. as soon as you can or else because I don't know if Napoleon's going to hold on. Because there was a question of constitutionality with the, the purchase. The Jefferson wasn't sure if he had to first get a, a constitutional amendment uh uh, ratified before he had the authority to uh, sign the yeah. treaty and all that, and Monroe was just like, "No, just just do it before yeah. <laughs> before the mercurial Napoleon uh, changes his mind here because he's he's yeah. he's going back and forth every day on this." Well, that's right. Yeah, he he want, he, he does say, doesn't he? I'm going to give up Louisiana. I don't want to do it, but yeah. uh, I feel I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um. All right. Uh. Like I said, now that's I'm not sure if you answered the question of what's the uh, the one thing you'd want. Oh, yeah, you did about uh, looking beyond him. Yeah, just, just right, right. take your eyes off the battlefield. Yes, field, right. Basically, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, before we go, is there uh, anything else you want to plug while we're here? Any uh, any appearances or anything else you got going on that you're working on coming up? Or anything no, no, like that? I, I think not. I think not. I've just heard that uh, that the 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 Franco-British Society has given the book a prize, which oh, is nice. nice. Very nice. Congratulations. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's 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 that's, the, that's the, the the most important thing in my mind at this moment. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, again, uh, the book is Napoleon at Peace: How to End a Revolution. A uh, very very interesting uh, little book. Um, it's. Uh, uh, on an aspect of Napoleon, I'm sure most people don't really read about. Like you said, I'm sure they. It's mostly the the battles and the the wars yeah. and Austerlitz and Jena and all that sort of stuff. But sure. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, it's a fascinating little book uh, on how uh, Napoleon really um, uh, brought uh, normality <laughs> back to France and. Uh, and ended the revolution on a, uh, I guess on a positive note, or uh, you know, or at least it did it saved the revolution from ending in in failure, complete failure. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a fascinating little book and uh, very well written. And you should also, other than this book, you should definitely go out and, if you're listening, uh, get the Oxford History of the French Revolution. To uh, I read that a long, long time ago, and that's a, a fantastic book on the. Maybe maybe the best one on the on the French Revolution. It's up there. It's pretty good. Um, so check that one out. And yeah, make sure you get Napoleon at Peace: How to End a Revolution. Again, the author is Dr. William Doyle. And Dr. Doyle, thank you very very much for coming on the podcast and discussing the book with me. And uh, and also thank you for you know taking the time to to write it so that uh, we can all out there enjoy it. So we appreciate the uh, the fruit of your labors. Thank you. All right, no problem. 
And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books or uh, you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast or any questions, comments, or whatever, you can uh, reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And you can also reach out to us on our Twitter account there. So if you have any questions, comments, or whatever, feel free to reach out to us there. You know, send us a send us a DM, give us a follow. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So, yeah, just make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.